evidence and answers. Today's headlines are filled with the news of military coups and uprisings throughout the Middle East. What instigated the conflicts? Who are the forces behind at work in these countries? And how will it affect us here in the United States? What can we expect in the near future? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen to Pat's guest, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, who recently presented a message at the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference entitled, The Current Middle East Crisis. Let's join Kirby Anderson now as he presents part one of his message entitled, The Current Middle East Crisis. And so when we talk about what has happened in the Middle East, I'm going to focus on just a few countries, but as we look at our Bibles, I think we'll begin to see that there are some very significant things that have significance to us now, but also have great prophetic significance in the future. But let's just even over the last couple of days look at some of the current tensions right now here in the Middle East. And the first that, of course, we've been hearing this week and what has been taking place in Afghanistan. The death toll has been rising there after the news that came out about the burning of the Qurans. And so far, we have at least two American soldiers that have been killed. At least 13 different Afghan civilians have been killed at a time when we've wanted to draw down troops in Afghanistan. That certainly has been a focus of national and international attention. Uh, we can move our attention for a minute to Syria and what has been taking place there. Some of the massacres that have taken place and the Syrian president, Assad, who sworn that he would not step down and yet the country right now has lost uh, control and some people are talking about whether or not we should be involved militarily in that particular country of Syria. And it would not be a good presentation on the Middle East without at least mentioning Iran. We'll come back to some of that a little bit later, but some of the tensions there uh, where just recently we had the supreme leader there, Ayatollah Khamenei, who was actually referring to Israel as a cancerous tumor that should be cut out and will be cut. And of course, the whole question about the nuclear program that is unfolded there, and certainly a lot of questions that are being raised. And if you haven't noticed the price of gasoline going up, even here in Hawaii, a lot of that essentially has, has to do with the fact that the futures market is absolutely convinced that Israel will tack Iran, and if that takes place, that it might close the Straits of Hormuz, from which a lot of oil comes. And so even though we're on this side of the world, not necessarily thinking about what's happening in Iran, we're being affected even indirectly by some of that as well. Uh, so when we talk about what is happening tonight, as you will see in the handout there, I'm going to look at two countries that are mentioned in the Bible. We'll look uh, first at the country of Libya and then the country of Egypt. Then I'll talk about a few of the other enemies of Israel. Israel, and this will be a very good setup for the presentation Dr. Mark Hitchcock is going to do after our break on Ezekiel 38 and 39. But when we talk about Libya, I think it's sort of surprising for a lot of people to recognize that Libya is actually mentioned in the scriptures. And the only other time I spoke on this, I had this real quizzical look from my audience. But if you begin to understand that the name Cyrene is tied to Libya, then all of a sudden you realize that Libya is mentioned quite a number of times in both the Old and New Testament. For example, we can read in Matthew 27 here that Simon who was of Cyrene, which was part of ancient Libya, was the man who carried the cross of Jesus. Then in Acts 2, we can learn that God-fearing men from Libya were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 
We have some other examples. In Acts 11, we learn that followers from Libya of Christ helped bring the gospel to Antioch, to Syria, and even made disciples there. We've got some other examples in Acts 13 where we learn of Lucius of Cyrene, which again was part of what we today would call Libya, was one of the leaders in the church in Antioch and helped send Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. So we have lots of examples just in the New Testament in which Libya is mentioned. We also have some in the Old Testament, as you will find out a little bit later when Dr. Hitchcock speaks. Another name for Libya is the word put. And there we can see that Put, it really was the third son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. So you have that in Genesis. We will be talking tonight about Ezekiel 38, a coalition that invades Israel. And then even in Daniel 11, the idea that the Libyan people would be in submission under the tribulation. So both in the Old and the New Testament, we have examples of Libya being mentioned. So let's, if we can, talk about the current conflict. I think all of us have, in a sense, been grateful that some of these corrupt leaders are no more. And certainly one of those is Muammar Gaddafi. I think most of us forget, though, that he was actually the leader of a military coup back in 1969. He overthrew the king and established the Libyan Arab Republic. He was involved in a number of things. You might remember, those of you a little bit older, that he was responsible for the 1986 bombing and that actually another action. And then later on, of course, there was the bombing of Libya, then the bombing of Pan Am 103. And then, of course, his toppling took place because of the Arab Spring that it was, I think, erroneously called, which began first in Tunisia, spread to Libya, have spread to many other countries, which we'll talk about in just a minute. The impact, even though he is gone, is significant because he was a threat not only to countries in the Middle East, but also developed alliances with Russia. Now, there's a real question as to whether or not those alliances that he developed, and here's a picture with him with Vladimir Putin, will continue with the new leadership. But there is a real concern about that. And as we talk tonight about this coalition that eventually would come against Israel, who would have predicted, uh, say, three or four centuries ago that Russia and Libya would even be talking to one another? And here we can see, at least when Gaddafi was in power, that they had an impact and developed an alliance. Probably the biggest concern for those of us that are interested in the gospel and missions is that if you travel to Africa, and many of our probe staff do, you will recognize that many of the mosques that have been built in Africa were built with money through Muammar Gaddafi. And so one of the great challenges today in what is called the 1040 window and the challenges today with world missions is that these Christians are having to fight against the impact of the money that came from Gaddafi and others to build those mosques and those impact that it's having in terms of spreading Islam, a topic we'll talk about a little bit later. But, of course, the biggest question, and you will notice in your handout after my handout there, that we have one of the articles that we've published more recently about the so-called Arab Spring. But I would suggest to you that the Arab Spring has turned into a Christian winter. It has not been easy for Christians to live in Arab countries, but as we have lost some of those dictators who are not good people, the anarchy that has developed and the rise of militant Islam has made it even more dangerous for many of those Christians and oftentimes even for the average citizen. And so many people have said, well, even if the people in Libya really wanted democracy, and there's not a great deal of evidence that these were people like Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton or George Washington, but nevertheless, even if they did have a desire to move for a more democratic direction, the radical Muslim forces, I think, will perhaps 
sooner rather than later, most likely turn Libya into something that looks a lot more like Iran. I think that brings us back to a question I'm asked many times, and that is, is it hard to grow democracy on a Muslim soil? And I would say that it is. Uh, because if you think about this question, how many Arab states have implemented democratic values, religious tolerance, and rights for all after a revolution that deposed a dictator? I'm having trouble coming up with too many examples. Are you? That's sad. And I think the reason for that is it really is hard to grow a democracy or a republic on Muslim soil. Because after all, democratic values, things like one person, one vote, equal protection, constitutional guarantees for human rights, treating men and women equally, these are foreign to Muslim theology. We have out there on the book table a number of books, and one of those, which we'll talk more about a little bit later, is my book, A Biblical Point of View on Islam. And if you really want to understand just some of the basic principles of Islam, you can recognize that Arab countries right now that practice Sharia don't allow women to vote. They value the testimony of a man over a woman. A woman has half the testimony of a man in a court uh, that actually has Sharia law. Uh, they do not guarantee the same rights to infidels as they do to Muslims. Muslims have greater rights. Those who are not practicing Muslims may be persecuted. Those who are not Muslims at all may be considered infidels or dimmies. Dimitude is something that is practiced there as well, in which they have sort of second-class status. And oftentimes the Muslim leaders can point to verses in the Quran to justify their actions. So we can see that oftentimes it is very difficult to have a democracy in a Muslim country. Uh, there are some exceptions, and the exceptions prove the rule, perhaps Turkey being one of those examples in which you've had some democratic values up until fairly recently. Well, that was because the leader Ataturk really tried to implement it more as a secular culture, even though it had a Muslim culture as well. So even the exceptions oftentimes prove the rule. And this is why so many people have been concerned about the possibility of what could unfold in the Middle East over these next couple of years. Let's move from Libya uh, to Egypt, because after all, if you want to talk about one country that is mentioned more times in the Bible other than Israel itself, Egypt certainly would be in that category. And let's look at both Egypt's past and perhaps a little bit of an indication of its future, because it's going to be important as we talk a little bit later, as Dr. Hitchcock talks a little bit later about this uh, war that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. First, let's go back in a little bit of history. Of course, we can go all the way back to the history of Egypt to the pharaohs, but I want to look at least modern times. And in 1952, Gamal Abdel Nasser took power and actually became president by 1956. He was a military leader, and one of the things you will notice up until now is that all of the leaders in Egypt have been from the military, and he was one of those. Those of you that are a little bit older, and this is where gray hair will come in handy at this point, those of you a little bit older, you might remember when he nationalized the Suez Canal in 1956. Oil and very important products come through the Strait of Hormuz, but also a great deal of oil and other important vital things come through the Suez Canal. And so as a result, he actually nationalized the Suez Canal and began to develop a rarely close relationship with then the Soviet Union. He was involved in the Six-Day War, but three days after the 1967 Six-Day War against Israel, he actually died, and he was succeeded by another military leader by the name of Andwar Sadat. 
Now, Anwar Sadat began to change things dramatically in Egypt. He first of all switched the alliance that Egypt had with the Soviet Union to the United States but also went along with the Arab countries, which decided in 1973 to launch another attack. In this case, it was a prize attack along with Syria against Israel. And this was an effort to regain the Sinai Peninsula. Now, interestingly enough, Israel won that war as well. Israel has been victorious in every one of those wars. But even though Israel won a military victory, Anwar Sadat won a political victory. Because he attacked Israel, he was very well loved by the people in Egypt. And so as a result, he gained a great deal of stature. But what was so striking is a number of years later, he then actually began to develop a relationship with Israel. In 1977, for example, Anwar Sadat flew to Jerusalem, spoke to the Israeli Knesset, and this really was the first time in which you had an Arab nation in the Middle East developing any kind of relationship at all with Israel. And so this was really kind of the first breach in what you might call the 33 determination by all the Arab states to destroy Israel. Well, that continued on, and again, those of you a little bit older might remember what happened next, and that is the picture I posted up there. It's a picture of Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin, and President Jimmy Carter in what are known as the Cap David Peace Accords, in which there was actually, even to this day, a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. In a minute, we're going to talk about that peace treaty, so let's just put that on kind of a coat rack for a minute. We're going to come back to it. But when they made that decision to actually develop a peace treaty, that treaty caused the Arab League to reject Egypt. And now those who had been supportive of Andawar Sadat began to rally against him. And in 1981, a military soldier assassinated Andawar Sadat in Cairo. And so then he was replaced by Hafni Mubarak, who also was a military leader and up until recently had served as the president and commander-in-chief. Now you come to the point of Egypt where there are lots of question marks in terms of what is happening. One of the question marks is who would replace those individuals? In your handout there, I suggest there are some possibles, but I'm going to look at the most likely for some time, people have said, well, maybe we could actually, for the first time in Egypt, have somebody who would be replacing either Anwar Sadat or Hafni Mubarak with a person that is not part of the military. One of the individuals oftentimes mentioned is Mohammed al-Baradeh, who was born in Egypt, educated in Egypt and America, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, interesting enough, for his work with the International Atomic Energy Agency not necessarily a friend of ours in some ways, has said some very critical things of the United States, but at the same time is seen as maybe just a little too pro-Western, not radical enough, and even more recently was attacked by a number of extremists. Some others have suggested Amr Mohammed Musa. He was uh, born in Egypt, uh, earned a law degree, served as the UN ambassador, as well as the Minister of Foreign Affairs under Mubarak. Also served as Secretary of the League of Arab Nations, but again, some people believe that he may not be radical enough given the fact that there are factions there that want to move Egypt in a much more radical direction. 
And I think you can illustrate that fairly quickly by a poll that was done by the Pew Research Center a number of years ago. But they have concluded that, indeed, Egypt is much more radical than people might even have imagined. For example, they found that Egyptians prefer religion to play a large role in politics. Now, if that was a role from a Christian perspective, that's one thing, but we're talking about, of course, a Muslim influence, as best illustrated by some of the other statistics I've put up there on the screen. For example, 84% of Egyptians favor the death penalty for people who leave the Muslim faith. Does that sound like Sharia, Islam? Certainly it does. 77% think that thieves should have their hand cut off if indeed they have been caught stealing. Again, that sounds like something out of uh, Sharia law. And 54% believe that suicide bombings that kill civilians can be justified. So I think it helps us understand that Egypt is a much more radical. And again, if you had listened to the mainstream media, and I hope that you listen and read more than just the mainstream media, there were many that were suggesting that this is an Arab Spring. These are people that are longing for democracy. And yet, if you look behind some of the rallies, I understand the desire to remove Mubarak or any leader like Qaddafi uh, or some of the other leaders that we can talk about in the Middle East, but what oftentimes is replaced by those individuals is something that should cause all of us a great deal of concern. Which brings us to a conversation I'd like to have for a few minutes about the Muslim Brotherhood. Even more recently, I saw some testimony that was before the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee in which one of the members of the administration was saying that the Muslim Brotherhood is really not that radical an organization. And after this particular individual finished his testimony, I was thinking, is he con confusing the Muslim Brotherhood with the Chamber of Commerce or what? I'm not so sure here. So we're going to, for just a few minutes, if you'll allow me to be a little bit politically incorrect and tell you the rest of the story, as uh, we oftentimes heard individuals say. I think it's important to understand a little bit more about the Muslim Brotherhood because they really, I believe, are the force behind what is taking place not only in Egypt but other countries in the Middle East. Let's talk about that. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood was established back in 1928 when the Egyptians at that time, one of the Egyptian leaders in particular, who was sort of the intellectual grandfather for a number of the terrorist leaders, actually were angered at the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. You know, up until World War I, you had the Ottoman Empire. The Turks pretty much controlled that area, and you had what was kind of known as a caliphate or a, a structural Islamic rule, and that existed until those countries were redrawn, and the defeat of the Turks uh, and the redrawing of the lines of these countries began to upset some of those radicals. By the way, to this day, some of the country's lines were drawn by a man who at that time was the foreign minister in Great Britain, a man by the name of Winston Churchill, who later went on to be the prime minister. And so as a result, their idea was to resurrect this idea of a Muslim caliphate and actually implement a Muslim unity within these various countries, one that would be much more radical. The slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood is Al-Islam Hu Al-Ar, which means Islam is the solution. 
and it is something that is easily identified by their symbol. Now, if you've seen any of the Muslim Brotherhood and their symbols, you will probably most likely see many of them wearing green. You will see they actually have this particular symbol that has these two cross swords. Uh, Up above is a picture of the Quran, and below it in Arabic is the word prepare. Now, you might say, well, what does that mean? I mean, after all, Boy Scouts say, be prepared. What's wrong with prepare? And well, this is really something that's a little more significant because it's based upon uh, Surah 8 in the Quran. Prepare against them as you are able of force and calvary to terrorize Allah's enemies and yours. So that's what the word prepare means, and it helps you understand a little bit more about the intent of the Muslim Brotherhood. Matter of fact, the motto is uh, something that you can find out. You don't have to believe me. You can go do a Google search right now because, after all, Google knows all. And you can do a Google search and you can type in the Muslim Brotherhood motto, and the motto is well known. It is Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, Quran is our law, Jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. The original founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, was the founder and certainly had a desire to implement what we would consider to be a much more radical and literal interpretation of the Quran and thus justifying those kinds of actions. But at the same time, we have individuals in the administration that have said they don't seem radical. They don't seem like Al-Qaeda. They don't seem like Hezbollah. They don't seem like Hamas. So maybe they're different kind of Muslims. And this is where you have to know a little bit about Arabic. Well, I don't. But as a talk show host, I have individuals that actually, and one individual in particular whose wife is Egyptian, he's Jewish. Don't ask. Interesting family, but that's okay. But he actually has his wife who can read Arabic and is uh, monitoring Egyptian broadcasts, monitoring the things that the Muslim Brotherhood have been saying. And what I'm giving you right now are just a few of the quotes. I have shortened this again in the interest of time, but you can read more of it later on if you would like as you go to Pat Zucharin's website, Evidence and Answers. But one of their particular writings says, it's up to the Muslim leadership to assess the situation. They go on to say, before deciding the appropriate type of jihad. Now, when we use the word jihad today, we've in a sense been enculturated to believe jihad always means a person that wants to go out and slit your throat. Well, there are different meanings for jihad. Matter of fact, if you have an English translation of the Quran, and I have a number of different ones, oftentimes that word jihad is translated to strive or to struggle. And so some suggest that that striving or struggle is involving armed combat, but also the idea of jihad is persuasion or influence. And so they went on in this particular article to say that Muslims may find that jihad through persuasion or peaceful resistance is the best and most effective method. And so what I'm noticing right now is the Muslim Brotherhood are actually saying maybe the most significant and most effective way for us to take power is to use what we would call persuasive jihad. And so the Muslim Brotherhood seem to be using that in Egypt and in Tunisia. Recognize that right now you've had elections. There are three separate elections. We've had two of the three. The third just about ready to be completed. And the Muslim Brotherhood have been able to win enough seats in the parliament. And so they're suggesting that maybe it's much more effective 
A more effective jihad would be a persuasive political jihad and actually take over control of the country versus, say, a violent jihad that you would get, say, from Hamas or Al-Qaeda. Does that make sense? And so I can see why you would have some people in the administration saying, well, the Muslim Brotherhood seem different than Al-Qaeda. They seem different than uh, Zarqawi or Osama bin Laden or whatever. And that's true. But the goal in the end is still the same. Does that make sense? Also, this is going to be a very important foreign policy issue. We do send a fair amount of foreign aid around the world. The country that receives the most amount of foreign aid... Israel. The country that receives the second amount of foreign aid is what? Egypt. Now, with the absence of Mubarak, will we continue to do so? Well, the top leader in Muslim Brotherhood just this last week said that any cuts in U.S. aid to Egypt could affect the country's peace treaty with Israel. Now, we're back to that peace treaty, aren't we? So, they're using the peace treaty as a weapon to continue to get foreign aid. But think about this for a minute. Many Egyptians really don't want the foreign aid. They have seen foreign aid as being a corruptive influence in their own government. They saw foreign aid helping Mubarak and the military. And so a large majority in the latest parole I've just found, 71% of Egyptians actually opposed U.S. aid. But look at it in this country. You know, as a talk show host, I can tell you, whenever I open up the phones and say, where would you cut the government? One of the first things people say is what? Foreign aid. This concludes part one of Kirby's study entitled The Current Middle East Crisis. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this study and enjoy other great resources on this site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the teachings of Pat's guests, like Kirby Anderson. Please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat's guest, Kirby Anderson, concludes this study entitled The Current Middle East Crisis right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.